All right, well, how is everybody? Better than we deserve. Better than we deserve. Everybody good. All right. Uh, okay, so tonight we are going to... Uh, we're in... Okay. I just want to make sure everybody... We're all on the same page here. Um, we're only in verse 5 of chapter 2. This is week 7. We are ahead of schedule? Yeah, we're not. Um, we're gonna. We're only gonna get through verse five tonight. Maybe, maybe verse six. We're not gonna go through July. I I, I went through today and I I kind of outlined out everything that's. Got, yeah, I think we're okay. I just there's just some things in chapter two that uh, I want to take some time on, and then you know chapter four, uh, you know is is really short. There's not a whole lot. You know, we can get through that. And, and, uh, but anyway, there's, there's just some things I want to take some time on. So anyway, we're going to slow down. Um, well, we're going to keep the same pace we've been keeping. But I just don't want anyone to be alarmed and think that we're not going to get through this. Uh, so there, there's a method to the madness here. Uh, so now of all the lessons that we're going to do, uh, if there ever was one where we went, like I said, the long way around the barn to make our point, that's we're on it tonight. And so... Uh, I think it's important. I think there's some lessons here that are worth bringing out. Um, maybe teachable things that you can take back and, and use uh, with maybe the people you're working with, with your, your other congregations and things. But we're going to try to connect a lot of dots um, to kind of bring our point around tonight. And so, but let's, let's kind of get us back on track because, you know, these things do have to build. And so, you know, we're we going to review a little bit each week. And, and that may feel monotonous, but I, I just think it's necessary. So, um, so seven questions in the book of Malachi. Uh, we've been through the first three of them. Uh, God starts out, you know, with the question, okay, they, they want to know in what way have you loved us? And we've mentioned each week that all of their problems start here because, you know, it's, it's because they don't understand what God has done for them. And they don't appreciate that and respect that that everything else starts to fall apart. And, and again, there's, you know, you, you got to see how that applies to us today. Uh, in verse 6, in what way have we despised your name? Well, God tells them that it's, it's not in what they're saying, it's what they're doing, right? And so they say uh, that God is their father and their master, but God's saying, I'm not seeing it. it there's no respect. There's no honor. Um, you know, there's, there's a relationship problem. And, and one of the things that, that we, we'll bring up again and again is that the problem is that the people in Malachi, they don't see it, right? They think they're fine. And that's, that is such a dangerous place to be in. When people feel spiritually secure and, and they've, they've disconnected you know, what they're doing and how they're living from their faith, or they've disconnected their faith from the Bible. That, that happens, seems to be a whole lot. Uh, I mean, we're in for just absolute disaster. And, and that's kind of where they're at. They're just kind of going through these empty motions. But they do, they do not realize that there's a problem. And so God's got to get them to see that. The third question was, in what way have we defiled you? And so we've, we've, talked, uh, we've, we've talked about Jake's problem with his defilement and his, his uh, lame, sick, blind, deaf goat. Uh, that he's dragging up to the altar every week and how it, you know, it just keeps getting worse because sin does increase and yeah, the appetite for sin increases and you know, that's how compromise works, guys. You know, it started with Jake and his less than perfect lamb and now it's barely a lamb at all. And, uh, um, but anyway, you know, so that the people are bringing garbage you know, to the temple and, you know, and God's, God's saying, okay, you're bringing me exactly what I've said I don't want, but the priest's response is, how, how is this our fault? 
Okay, and, and you know, it'd be easy to blame it on the people, right? Well, it, they're the ones bringing the garbage, not, not the priest. But the priest's job is to hold the line and to determine, not to determine, but to hold God's standard, right? God has said what's acceptable and what's unacceptable. And so the priests, it's their job to make sure that, that that's the standard that God gave them is also the standard that they're using at the temple. And so, again... How many times do we see this in congregations where you can look at what God says, that God says this is unacceptable, and sometimes a congregation will decide, well, we think it's acceptable anyway. You know, and, and that happens very, very often. And so, uh, so in what way have we defiled you? Now, um, we, we kind of pivot away from the questions for a little bit, uh, but we did see um, a couple points that we brought out each week. Sin manifests itself first in attitude, then in action. It's really important that we understand that. Sometimes in the church, we kind of deal with the action and we don't resolve the attitude. They, they both have to be addressed, okay? You can't, you can't deal with sin without dealing with sin, but you have to deal with why the sin exists to begin with. And so, because God is, is not respected and honored in Malachi, now they're bringing defiled sacrifices to the altar and so the attitude is where it begins and then it manifests itself in their actions and so resolving the problem works the same way you you can't just deal with what they're doing because they could bring the right sacrifice and their attitude still be in the wrong place and it won't last you've got to change got to change the way people think and, and the reason their their thought process is those sorts of things and so so that's important. We also come to the conclusion that in chapter 1, verse 10, God is at a point where He is ready to shut the gates uh, on the temple. And so, you know, what does that mean? Well, the temple is the, is the, the link between God's people and Him, right? It's, it's how they can serve Him. It's how they can worship Him. It's, it's uh, you know, it's, it's everything. And God is saying it's, it, we're wasting our time with this. And that's such an important lesson too because when we don't do this to God's standard, it, it, it doesn't produce what it's supposed to. And so it becomes meaningless for both God and the worshiper. Right, and so God, God is saying this is wasting my time, and then the worshippers also feels burdened by it, and they feel like it's wasting their time too. Well, because it is, right? And so you know, this this I've wondered, you know, for for you know, I try to get very very personable, you know, in our congregation over in Glencoe, and we're not a huge congregation. We you know maybe fifty people, and so I've been there for about fifteen years, and I've always thought, well, you know, we're we're small enough and we're close enough that. Maybe we can get away with doing some things, uh, you know, from as far as from the pulpit as a preaching that I maybe couldn't get away with in other places, okay? And so we can be very, very specific to what's going on and the issues that we're dealing with and try to work through things as a congregation. And for years, I, you know, I used to wonder, you know, there's people that, that don't want to go in all in on this. And I thought, why even show up? You know, like, what, why, would you, why would you want to even... If it was me, because, cause, you know, I try to make sure nobody, nobody can, can get out of this without, without coming face to face with, with, with where we're all at spiritually. And so it's like, why would you want to show up every week and take that kind of a beating if you knew that you weren't going to be doing this the right way? And turns out people don't want to take the beating. They'll just leave over time, you know. And so, and so but, but is that so bad? I, you know, that's, that's something to think about, you know. Was it doing them any good to be there if you weren't forcing them to see themselves through the mirror of God's Word and the spiritual situation that they're in? And then if they finally did see it and they got upset and left, 
Well, at least they saw it, and so they, had, they were forced to think about it. Maybe they'll renegotiate that and reorient themselves toward God's will, and maybe, the, maybe we'll see them again. I don't know. But, but this is the situation that they're at in Malachi's day, and it's a, it's, 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 a, it's a very serious thing we're considering. Consider also, this is the final word from God for about 400 years, and so He's not going to bring another prophet till John the Baptist, and so there's, there's not going to be... Uh, uh, the, the, you know, Malachi part two, where he shows up and says, okay, we talked about this. Um, you still aren't hearing it. Let's try it. I mean, this is it. This is the last uh, instruction that they're getting. And so, you know, it's, it's kind of all or nothing here with this. And so um, in chapter two, we finally got to the solution. God told them they're going to have to listen. They're going to have to take it to heart. And then what's going to be the response? Well, you know, they, they could reject it, but the response that's going to work is the one where they give glory to His name. And so that's what we want. That's, that's the ideal solution here. And so that's what God's trying to work. And, so, and then last week we talked about um, how God gave them the warning that God was going to put poop on their faces and, and, you know, and, and kick them out of the camp. And so we kind of talked about that um, and what that means. He's going to rebuke their offspring. What's important about the priest's offspring? Yeah, they become the next priests, right? And so it's, that's a big deal there. And so, um, and so God kind of gave them some, some, some things to think about, but then told them that their covenant was, was, was they're in danger of losing their covenant. Right, specifically the priests, you know, and uh, you know, and we talked about a covenant, and 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 we talked about this in the tabernacle class as well. But it's it, we're building on this today. So we mentioned that a covenant, you know, is like a marriage, and it's not like a contract, which is like a cell phone plan. And you know, we people tend to think of a covenant like a contract, and so contracts are based on circumstances and they're based on conditions right and so that's the idea and so you know uh and they're they're and they're needed because we don't trust each other right and so the car dealer doesn't just trust that you're going to pay them you're going to have to to agree to a contract if you can't pay for the car right now right and so that's that's how that works and and marriage isn't like that at all right so you don't get married because you don't trust your spouse uh, you don't get married thinking, well, I don't trust you, but if I can get some paperwork on you, you know, maybe we can make this thing work. Um, that, that's a horrible idea. You, you get married because you trust each other. And then what are the vows about? The vows are showing that this is not based on conditions, right? Or circumstances, for better, for worse, till death do us part, sickness and health. I got them out of order. But, you know, all of that. Those are the conditions. And what you're saying is that the conditions of our lives may vary and change, but our marriage is not going to be affected by those conditions. We're, we're still in this to the end. That was the idea. And so I asked the question, well, what could cause a covenant to fall apart then if it's not based on conditions? And, and, I, and it's worth considering, well, what kind of circumstances or conditions have the covenant with Levi, but, you know, the covenant between God and His people of the Old Testament, what conditions has that covenant survived under? Right? And it's like, man, you could write... Well, there is a book on that. I was going to say you could write a book on that. But there, there literally is a book on that, right? And so we're talking about, you know, going through the wilderness and we're talking about all the grumbling and the complaining and the battles and the wars and the conquest over Canaan and the captivities and, and all of the disobedience and the idolatry and all the horrible things that took place. And yet God is still honoring that covenant and, and it still exists. But here He's telling them that the covenant, we're in danger of... of, of, of 
of this covenant being terminated at some point here. And so I, I mentioned that for me and my wife, I, I'm, I'm very confident that we could survive our marriage about any circumstance. And, and, I, and I, try, I know how that sounds. I've not been through every circumstance and I'm not going to sit here and say we've had it worse than other people even. Um, but, you know, I, I feel like our marriage could make it uh, through whatever circumstance. But I can tell you right now that if my wife's attitude toward me was like that of the priests toward God, where she had no respect for me, where she had no honor for me, where she despised me, where she hated spending time with me, where, you know, it was just a burden to be married with me. How long is that marriage going to make it? I mean, it's, we're in trouble. The, the ship is sinking, right? And that's, and that's where they're at. It's not a circumstance that's going to cause a problem here between God and his priesthood. It's, it's a character issue, right? And, and, and so covenants are based on the character of the two people in the covenant. That's, that's, that's why you make the, the... So anyway, that's important to think about. So um, anyway, that gets us back into, uh, into where we need to be here for tonight. Um, I mentioned we had a little homework for the last two weeks to do some reading um, in, uh, in, in numbers, and so we're going to jump in there for a minute. But let's, let's go back to Malachi 2, 1 through 5, and read this. It says, Now this commandment is for you, O priests, if you do not listen, if you do not take it to heart to give honor to my name, says the Lord of hosts, then I'll send the curse upon you, and I'll curse your blessings, and indeed I've cursed them already, because you're not taking it to heart. Behold, I'm going to rebuke your offspring. I'll spread refuse on your faces, the refuse of your feasts. You'll be taken away with it. Then you'll know that I've sent this commandment to you, that my covenant may continue with Levi, says the Lord of hosts. My covenant with him, in verse 5, was one of life and peace, and I gave them uh, to him as an object of reverence, so he revered me and stood in awe of my name. Okay, and so um, one of the questions, you know, is as I started studying this out a couple years ago, was what covenant exactly are we referring to here, and and who's the Levite in question? And so the only connection I was able to find was was with Phineas, uh, which is the grandson of of, uh, of Aaron. And what takes place, uh, you know, what we call the sin of Peor uh, in, in that situation. But I want to, like I said, we're going to go all the way around the barn to kind of make this make some sense. Uh, and there's some lessons in this, I think, that are worth. And I, I tried to do my best to get these things organized in a way that you can follow on the outline. I'm not used to giving out outlines. So if it doesn't make sense, just wad them up and throw them away. And, and uh, you know, we'll try to do better next time. But uh, I, I tried to, to make some sense out of this. You may want to jot down some notes, flip that thing over, and just, just start over with them. But let's, uh, let's, kinda, let's go back into Numbers chapter 22. And this is kind of where we're going to kick off tonight. So Numbers chapter 22. Um, we're going to try to build up to what takes place in chapter 25. Yes? Oh, I'm so sorry. Yeah, let's have a word of prayer to get us going tonight. What do you think of that? All right. <clears throat> Father God, we're grateful tonight and thankful for our time to be here this evening uh, thankful for everyone who's taken uh, time to be a part of this class. Uh, we're grateful for, uh, for your word, uh, for your great wisdom, for knowing that we would need these things written down for our own instruction. And so, Father, we ask for wisdom tonight and, and sincerity on our part here as we uh, continue to, to be students of your word. And we pray this in the name of Jesus Christ. Amen. Thank you. Um, so, uh, so Numbers chapter 25 is where we're heading. Does everyone know 
when I talk about like Phineas and the centipede, do we know what I'm talking about? Are we familiar with it? Does anyone not really know what I'm talking about? How many of you are afraid to raise your hand right now? Okay, so all right, fair enough, fair enough. Okay, so we're we're gonna so what we're gonna do is we're gonna start back. We're actually gonna go into chapter twenty-one a little bit too, but we're gonna try to build up to make sense of what happens there because basically what's going to happen is you're going to have Phineas who's a, who's a priest. He's going to take a spear and he's going to run it through uh, an Israelite and, and this Moabite woman and kill them both. And, and you know, and, and it's, it's, a, it's, a, it's kind of a big deal, okay? And God, God is in the middle of, of punishing Israel. There's a plague breaking out. Uh, God tells Moses to, to literally hang the leaders of Israel in broad daylight for everyone to see. I mean, God is not happy with what's going on. And this is one of those moments that if you don't, if you don't pay attention and you aren't really connecting the dots, it certainly can seem like maybe God's overreacting. I mean, I think that can certainly be the, the, the kind of takeaway if you're not careful. And so I want us to go back and see why is this such a big deal? I mean, why is God so upset? Why is God going to this extreme uh, to punish the people and, and get them to see what's happening? And so, so anyway, chapter 22 uh, is where we'll kind of pick up here. Um, verses 1 through 4. It says, Then the sons of Israel journeyed, and they camped in the plains of Moab behind the Jordan opposite Jericho. Now Balak, the son of Zippor, saw all that Israel had done to the Amorites. So Moab was in great fear because of the people, for they were numerous, and Moab was in dread of the sons of Israel. Moab said to the elders of Midian, Now this horde will lick up all that is around us as the ox licks up the grass of the field. And Balak, the son of Zippor, was the king of Moab at this time. Okay, so... Here's what's happening. Israel is in the middle of what I call the wonder years, okay? Because they're, they're one, that was a joke. Uh, <laughs> it's all right. Uh, the, so it's the wonder years. They're going through the wilderness, right? They're wandering through the wilderness. So, and they're, but they're making their way. They're, they're, they're making their way to the promised land, right? And so that's, that's where they're going. And at this point, they've kind of, they've kind of, they've, they're camped out in Moabites territory. And see, that's, that's the problem is they're going to claim land, but on their, but they have to, they have to make it there. And it's not like all of that land is just empty, vacant land. Okay. And, and so to get there, they've got to find a way to get there. And as they're traveling, they keep making this request to cross through everybody's territories. And basically the problem is that nobody wants Israel going through their backyard. And so this becomes a, a repeated theme uh, for several chapters of numbers here uh, because, you know, well, it's, it's a big crowd, okay? We, we kind of looked, uh, you know, Numbers 26 tells us there's 604,730 uh, men, uh, men, okay? And that's able-bodied men for war. Uh, and then there's also 20,300 Levites. And, and, you know, and so when we did the introduction to this, this class, we talked, well, what kind of crowd are we dealing with? An extremely conservative number here is two and a half million people. And that is very very conservative. That's assuming that the population of able-bodied men who can go to war is like one in four people. And, you know, of course, back then, people had more than one or two kids, okay? Uh, that was very common. And so, you know, w w it was probably way more than this, uh, probably closer to, to three to five million people. But anyway, for all intents and purposes, let's just say two and a half million people. And like I said, imagine that coming through uh, Madison, 
Okay, you think the city would be okay with that? Right, so what are the concerns? You're, you're going to ruin the land. You're going you know, to destroy our crops. You're going to eat up the crops as you go through. Your animals are going to track uh, you know, and, and, you're, you know, and, and, and mess up the ground. You're going to lick up all the water. You know, these are all the concerns. And so, so anyway, this, this is, this, like I said, a repeated theme as we go through here. Now, let's go back, let's go back real quick to Numbers chapter 20. Okay? This is the first time this becomes an issue um, and it's with the Edomites. And we talked about that at the beginning of Malachi, right? God says, oh, Jacob I've loved and, and uh, Esau I've hated. And so we talked about Esau and the Edomites and, and their struggle. And, you know, this was part of the struggle was that uh, Israel comes to the land of the Edomites and Edom does not want Israel to come through the land. And so let's, let's kind of read this here. Numbers chapter 20, uh, 17 through 18. It says... Uh, it says, okay, please let us pass through your land. We will not pass through field or through vineyard. We'll not even drink water from a well. We will go along the king's highway, not turning to the right or the left until we pass through your territory. Edom, however, said to him, you shall not pass through us or I'll come out with the sword against you. Again, the sons of Israel said to him, We will go up by the highway, and if I and my livestock do not uh, drink any of your water, then I will pay its price. Let me only pass through on my feet and nothing else. And so, anyway, this, this is kind of... So Israel's making this promise. Let, let us come through. There's basically two passageways, right? There's what's called the King's Highway, which is a, an easy kind of trade route. Uh, where the, it, it's, it's a closer route. It's, it's less distance to travel. It's, it's a safe for route uh, and so Israel is requesting passage through the king's highway and Edom is saying if you step foot in here we are going to attack you we don't want you here and we don't trust that you're not going to just devastate our land as you go through that's that's the issue now who remember what's the relationship between Israel and the Edomites goes back to Jacob and Esau so they're they are family right it's they're kind of like distance distant cousins and so you know in order to avoid unnecessary conflict with people who they are closely related to um, Israel does not go through the king's highway instead they they take the desert highway which was a more dangerous and a longer um, a longer route less connecting cities you know those sorts of things and so that happens in Numbers chapter 20. Well, who remembers what happens in Numbers chapter 21? It says in verse 4 and 5, Then they set out from Mount Or by the way of the Red Sea to go around the land of Edom, and the people became impatient because of the journey. The people spoke against God and Moses. Why have you brought us up out of Egypt to die in the wilderness? There's no food, no water, and we loathe this miserable bread. Or food. Miserable food. Okay, and so... You know, chapter 21, what, well, what ends up happening to them? Yeah, this is, the, you know, we get the snakes, the fiery serpents, everyone's bitten and dying, and so the, the Moses has to raise up the, uh, the bronze serpent, and, you know, it's a tremendous account of Scripture, but it all happens because they are impatient because of the journey. They're, they're tired of the way. Well, again, what way are they going? They're going to the promised land. You'd think they'd be excited about that, but they are you know upset that they have to go through the desert highway they're they're worn out they've been you know it's they've been wandering in the wilderness you, you got to think about the whole picture they left Egypt to become their own people have they become their own people they don't have a home 
right? They don't have a land. They aren't really even a nation. They've, they've, they've got nothing. And so, you know, they're, they're very impatient. They're very tired. They're, 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 they're grumbling and they're complaining. And, and anyway, this is what kind of set that thing off. Okay, let's go back to Numbers uh, 21, uh, verses 21 through 26. So then it says that then Israel sent messengers to Sion, king of the Amorites, saying, let me pass through your land. Same idea, right? We're going to get to the next land, and the request is going to be the same. We will not turn off into field or vineyard. We will not drink water from the wells. Uh, we will go by the king's highway until we've passed through your border. But Sion would not permit Israel to pass through his border. So Sion gathered all his people and went out against Israel in the wilderness uh, and came to Jahaz and fought against Israel. So what's different about this, this, this time? We got battle breaking out, right? And so the first time, you got to understand, Israel's asking passage. The Edomites say no, and Israel just goes another way. Well, part of that is because, well, like I said, there's relationship there. The other thing is, the Edomites didn't attack Israel. They were more just ready to defend their, their territory. Here, when Israel asks permission, what happens? they came out to them and attacked, right? And so Israel's going to stand their ground. And so battle's going to take place. Okay, let's, let's keep reading there. I think that was uh, verse 24. Then Israel struck him with the edge of the sword and took possession of his land from the Arnon to the Jabbok as far as the sons of Ammon for the border of the sons of Ammon was Jazir. Israel took all these cities and Israel lived in all these cities of the Amorites and Heshbon and all her villages. Okay, and so we end up um, what we end up with is, is uh, we've got, there's actually, two, uh, there's actually two Amorite kings, okay? And so, and we learned that back in Deuteronomy chapter 3 verse 8, says, thus we took the land at that time from the hand of the two kings of the Amorites who were beyond the Jordan from the valley of Arnon to, to Mount Hermon. Um, and so the king in the south, we just read about, Sion, king of Heshbon, and then the king in the north is Og, Og, how do you want to pronounce that? I'm making most of this up, the pronunciations, by the way. I have no idea how to say any of this. Og, is that what we're doing? Let's do Og, king of Bashan, okay? And that's probably wrong, too, but we like it. What, what would you call that? Well, Chris said he's the OG. The OG, okay, fair enough. Well, do we, do, does anyone know anything about this guy? Um, I don't have it in here. Okay, um... Yeah, Deuteronomy chapter 3, verse 11. Let's see if it's on here. Where's it at? Ah, yeah. Okay, for only the OG, king of Bashan, was left of the remnant of Raphim. Behold, his bedstead was an iron bedstead. It is in Rabbah of the sons of Ammon. Its length was nine cubits. Its width, four cubits by ordinary cubit. And so this dude had a bed, okay, that was 13 and a half feet long and six feet wide. Now, we're told that information for some reason. Um, you know, I don't know that he was 13 and a half foot tall and six feet wide. Um, you know, I started thinking about this when I first saw him, like, man, this guy must have been huge. You know, Shaquille O'Neal's a big guy. Have you ever seen his bed? Like, it's a thing, like, you can look, it's, you know, his bed is gigantic. Like, he's several cubits yes yeah he's yeah but his the bed's way bigger than he is so you know i don't know that just because he's got a big bed means that he's necessarily this big but but he's obviously not a little tiny guy unless you know he's a little guy with thinks he's a big guy so 
you get that with dogs sometime anyway. Um, all right, back to where we were. But anyway, this is, the, this is the other king. So what we started with here is the two Amorite kings. And we just read where, okay, Israel comes to the border of the first one. And, and it's the same thing. Hey, let us pass through. We won't destroy your crops and your fields. We won't drink up your water. Anything we do, we'll pay for. We just want passage through. They come out and attack. And how, how does that, that battle end? Israel wins and Israel takes their land, right? This is going to be part of Israel's land, okay? And so that's, that's a big deal. And then, um, you know, we're going to find out this, they do the same thing with the king in the north. But if we were to kind of look, and this map's on your, your pages there, um, but Moab, which is where we're getting at here, is the land in between the Edomites and the Amorites, Okay? And so when we get up to, we're going to get into the Moabites here in a second, but the Moabite territory is in between the Edomites and the Amorites. And what we read to start this thing out in chapter 22 was that Israel was camped along this Arnon River, which is right here. Okay, and so they, they go into the, 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 the southern kingdom of the Amorites and they win and they take that land and then they're going to go in and take the land of the northern king because uh, he's going to come out and fight as well. And it might, and so this is kind of the path that they're trying to take, right? Israel's going to kind of come up through here and of course they're going to cross the Jordan and what, you know, and what's the first battle? Yeah, so they're going to cross uh, right across from Jericho. So that's the plan. Okay, and so they've got to, you know, they couldn't go through the Edomites, so they've got to go around, and then, you know, they're going to cut up through the Moabites here, and then we've got, we've got the Amorites who are, uh, you know, not being very hospitable, okay? And so, uh, and then here's the, the territory of the, uh, the northern um, king of the Amorites and the southern, and like I said, all of that becomes Israel's territory. They get to lay claim to all of it. And so that's, uh, that's important to know as we kind of go through this. So the... Uh, so they get to the, uh, the Amorites, you know, of course, refuse passage. Israel goes to war. And, you know, in verse um, 26 here, we just read all of this. Uh, but in verse 26, it says, For Heshbon was the city of Sihon, king of the Amorites, who had fought against the former king of Moab and had taken all his land out of his hand as far as the Arnon. Okay, and so if we go back to the map, the Moabite land here, Okay, um, the, the, you know, this, the Moabites and the Amorites had just had a battle. And who won that battle? The Amorites did, right? And so took their land as, as far to that river, okay, and sent the Moabites south. And so that, that's, that's important. We'll just kind of keep that in mind for a minute. Um, and so that's, that's where we are there. So anyway, Israel reaches the north. Uh, the king of Og refuses passage, goes to war, probably thinks, and this is where this is at, they turned up and went by the way of Bashan, and, and the OG, the king of Bashan, went out with all his people for the, for the battle. I don't even know how to pronounce that word. Verse 34, But the Lord said to Moses, Do not fear him. I've given him into your hand and all his people and his land, and you shall do to him as you did to Sion, king of the Amorites who lived in Eshbon. So they killed him and his sons and all his people until there was no remnant left, and they possessed his land. So the, the Amorites fought with the Moabites, and the Amorites won and took the land. Israel comes through and just wipes out both of those kings that prevailed against the Moabites and took all of that land. Okay? And so, you lost yet. I'm getting some looks. 
<laughs> we, okay, we'll, we'll get there, we'll get there. So in Numbers chapter 22, okay, Israel is now camped in the plains of Moab. Now, you've got to think about what, what the Moabites just witnessed. The Moabites have been defeated by the Amorites. They've been run south. And so, fresh from defeat, you've got to think they're, they're, they're weakened people. They're, they're probably uh, in a little bit of chaos there, uh, trying to kind of regroup and regather and rebuild. And they just see Israel come up and wipe out the, the, the two kings that, that took them out. Right? And so, if Israel can take out the people that took them out, you don't have to run the numbers real hard there to figure out the Moabites don't have much of a chance if Israel comes and attacks them. And so, verse 2, Now Balak the son of Zippor saw all that Israel had done to the Amorites. So you see why that statement means something now. Okay? Because Israel did all this to the Amorites and then they've got some history. And so, so what is Balak thinking? He's scared. Okay, Balak is scared. He's scared and, uh, you know, Amorites whooped the Moabites, lost their land, forced them to move south of that river, and Israel now possesses all that and, and are on their doorstep. And so it's a scary situation for him. So, um, some things that we need to kind of kick around here. Um, Moab then says to the elders of Midian, now this horde will lick up all that is around us, as the ox licks up the grass of the field, and Balak the son of Zippor was king of Moab at that time. So it seems, and this is a little confusing to me, may not even matter to you, um, the Moabites and the Midianites, they're in cahoots with one another. And, and, and we're not really told how or why Balak seeks an alliance with the Midianites in order to oppose Israel, other than the fact that Moab, they, they know that they're not going to have a chance here to stand on their own two feet. Okay, and so they've got to side with somebody. And so the Midianites and the Moabites from this point on in Numbers chapter 22 seem interchangeable, right? The Moabite women, the Midianites came in. You know, it's, it's the same group of people we're dealing with. So these two groups are, are, are working together. And it's probably because, you know, it's very possible that Balak uh, was a Midianite who is now running the Moabite people. Okay, so the king of Moab is, is Balak, the son of Zippor. And, you know, if it's my... Again, not that it really matters. No one's going to heaven or hell over whether this is true or not. But this is my suspicion, is that uh, the Moabites were defeated by the Amorites. A Midianite could have found some opportunity over a disorganized and weakened people to kind of take the lead. And so Balak's name, you know, if we go back into Judges, we see that there's couple other Midianite leaders mentioned uh, Oreb, which means raven, Zeep, Zep, which means wolf, uh, Balak means bird. I mean, he seems to have a Midianite name, you know, and so you know, anyway, I know that that's kind of a weak uh, proof text, but it's, it's, you know, something to think about here. Uh, but anyway, when you go through this and try to think, well, the Midianite people and the Moabite people, they're different people. Why are they working together here? Uh, this makes some sense to me. Uh, who are the Moabites? Okay, well, back in Genesis chapter 19, uh, it says, Thus both the daughters of Lot were with child by their father. The firstborn bore a son, called his name Moab. He's the father of Moabites to this day. As the younger, she also bore a son, called his name uh, Benami. Benami, we'll go with it. He is the father of the sons of Ammon to this day. Okay, and so that's interesting that... Uh, that, you know, we see conflict raging between these two as well. Uh, but, but the Moabites, uh, that's who they were. The Midianites, okay, uh, were, well, remember Moses married a Midianite woman? 
And so in Genesis 25.1, Abraham took another wife whose name was Keturah. She bore to him Zimran and, and uh, Jokshan. That'd be a great name if anyone's looking for baby names. Uh, Medan and Midian and Ishbak and Shua. Shua sounds good. Uh, so the Midianites were nomads. We don't really see where they have a lot of uh, real organization. We don't really see where they have a permanent territory. You can go through and judges, especially there with Gideon. They seem to be raiding the land, right? So they're, they're shepherds, they're, they're raiders. Um, you know, they, they seem to be also, um, you know, aligning with nations for the, like mercenaries, you know, aligning with people for the sake of, of uh of, of personal gain. Uh, Joseph was sold to Midianites in Genesis 37. Like I said, Moses married a Midianite woman. Um, just trying to get you to see the big connection here with, between everybody. So going back to Numbers chapter 22. Have I lost anybody yet? Everyone's still following? Now we're good. because got, We got pictures. That helps. Okay, so we're, we're getting to where we're going to call Balaam. Okay, but... I, but I want us to see why we're dealing with Balaam, okay? So, you know, in verses 5 and 6 of Numbers 22, uh, we're told here, so he sent messengers to Balaam, the son of Beor at Pethor, which is near the river in the land of the sons of his people, to call him, saying, Behold, the people came out of Egypt. Behold, they cover the surface of the land, and they're living opposite me. Now, therefore, please come and curse this people for me, since they're too mighty for me. Perhaps I may be able to defeat them and drive them out of the land. For I know that he whom you bless is blessed. He whom you curse is cursed. Okay, so who is Balaam? He's a prophet or something, okay? That, I mean, that's, yeah, he's a seer, okay? Understand, you know, we talk about Balaam being a prophet. You have to understand, he is not part of God's people. He's not an Israelite. Um, he, he does prophesy. Uh, there's, a, there's, there's, a, there's a good messianic prophecy from him coming up here in Numbers that is, is really a, a worth digging into. But apart from that, he's not God's prophet, okay? He's, he's uh, you know, of course in Deuteronomy 23.4, they hired against you Balaam the son of Beer from Pethor of Mesopotamia to curse you. He's not an Israelite. That's really important, okay? And so he is just, uh, he is a, a prophet for hire. He is a fortune teller, seer, that kind of a thing for hire. And he's got a pretty good reputation. His reputation is if he curses a people, they're cursed. And if he blesses people, they're blessed. And so he's got a good enough reputation uh, for being accurate with this sort of a thing that he gets everybody's attention and Balak, uh, working with the, the Moabites and the Midians there, uh, decide we're going to call Balaam in and we're going to have Balaam curse Israel and then, you know, they won't be able to prevail against us. So that's, that's the idea. Now, we kind of sum up this account, okay, because uh, we're not going to, this isn't really about Balaam so much, um, but it's important. You know, in verse 7 through 14, Balak, you know, they, they come to Balaam with what the Bible will refer to as the wages of unrighteousness later on. But what it really is, it's, it's, the, it's the wages of divination. It's the fees for divin divination, okay? That's the idea. In other words, what, what we have to pay you to get you to come and, and, and curse this people, okay? That's the idea. And so they're, they're going to come and, you know, and Balaam, you know, he basically says, uh, hey, you know, I have to, uh, 
I'll have to check with the Lord and, and see what the Lord has to say uh, before I can, uh, I can say yes or no. Now, you can sit back and say, well, maybe Balaam was trying to be upright. If you ask me, he's being a good car salesman. Okay, he's just trying to, uh, you know, trying to, he's got to make it look real. All right, so I'm going to go off by myself. I'll, I'll uh, you know, converse with the Lord. I'll come back in the morning and I'll tell you whether we can do this or not. Okay. Yeah, I got to go talk to my manager, kind of a thing, you know. And so he goes, he comes back. Well, it's not going to work. And so, what do they do? Well, they they come back with a bigger, bigger fee of divination, right? We're going to offer you even more, okay? And so then that's the tactic. That's the whole point. And so, like I said, don't 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 paint paint Balaam in too good of a light here, okay? He's he's not God's man, okay? Not that God can't use him a bit as we go through this, but. Um, and so, so anyway, so that's what he does. And so he, he comes back in verses 15 through, through 17. They send more prestigious leaders. They basically say, hey, we'll give you whatever, uh, whatever you want. And, you know, there's, there's clothes and there's gold and there's silver and all of that sort of a thing. And, you know, it sounds good. Okay, let's, let's go to verse 18. Um, you know, and it says, uh, Balaam replied to the servants, though Balak were to give me his house full of silver and gold, I couldn't do anything small or great contrary to the command of the Lord my God. Now, please, you also stay here tonight. I will, again, what is it? I'm going to go talk to the manager again. Okay, now here, this is, this is something to think about. He already asked God whether he was allowed to do this. And what did God say? Apparently came back and said no. And so why would he have, why would it matter if they come and offered him more? Because he wants to, right? He's, you know, he can feel that diviner's fee lying in his pockets, right? He's sitting here trying to think, how am I going to get this money? You know, especially since they've really, really uh, upped the ante here a little bit on him. And so, you know, he's got this coming. And so, and then God, you know, will, of course, will tell him to go ahead and do it. And it's kind of like this, you know, if you're a parent, do you, do you like it when your kids just keep asking you the same question over and over again? Right? You know, I said, I said no once, Right? So should you, should you give in if they ask 50 more times and say yes? Okay, and so, so God's saying, well, go ahead, but you're going you're, you know, to have to deal with the consequences of this. And so, so anyway, uh, Balaam goes ahead. He's riding on his donkey. You know how the story goes. Uh, so verse 22 through 35, we got some talking donkey going on. And, um, you know, God opens the donkey's mouth. And, you know, uh, that, and we know how that works. But if we continue through the next couple chapters, okay, um, and like I said, this isn't really about the donkey story. And what's funny about that, I think the donkey's more popular than Balaam. Um, I don't know that anyone would even know who Balaam was if it wasn't for the fact that there was a donkey involved in the story. So, uh, so there you go. Anyway, what comes next, okay, is kind of humorous because uh, I think more humorous than a talking donkey. Balaam says, I can only say what the Lord tells me to say. Balak wants Israel cursed. And so... Everywhere, every time Balaam goes to curse Israel, he blesses them. And Balak's getting mad. And Balak actually tells him, okay, listen, here's the deal. Um, I'm paying you to curse the people. So curse them or don't curse them, but don't bless them. You know what I mean? Like you're doing the opposite of what I paid you to do here. And so then this routine goes on where they, ba Balak keeps taking Balaam to different spots and saying, okay, see if your God will curse them here. Okay, that didn't work. And then they go to a different spot. Well, let's try here. See if your God will curse them here. And it's just not working. And so, anyway, that, that keeps on going on and going on. Well, we get to a point here, you know, if, if that was the end of the story, okay, then we, Balaam is fairly forgettable. 
and it's just as bad as, you know, he's, he's greedy and he didn't listen to God and there was a donkey involved and it's kind of a fun kid story. Uh, but if you go on, you know, in Numbers chapter 25, verses 1 through 3, this happens next, right? While Israel remained in, in, in Shittim, the people began to play the harlot with the daughters of Moab. They invited the people to the sacrifices of their gods. And the people ate and they bowed down to their gods. And so Israel joined themselves to Baal of Peor and the Lord was angry against Israel. If... If we didn't have any other information on Balaam, you know, we would just assume, well, Balaam's story ended, and then for some reason this happened. Um, unfortunately, we, we do have more information on Balaam. Okay, but we have to understand what's happening. Israel is, is about to join themselves to the Moabite people. Okay, that's, that's what's going to happen here. Okay, they've come out with their women and their sacrifices and their food, and Israel is being enticed uh, that, that, that this is coming into the camp of Israel, and, and it's, it's, a serious, it's a serious deal. But, but here's what we know about the council of Balaam. In Numbers 31, verse 6, it says, Behold, these caused the sons of Israel through the council of Balaam to trespass against the Lord in the matter of Peor. So the plague was among the congregation of the Lord. So when he says the matter of Peor, he's talking about bringing these Moabite women into the camp with their sacrifices and their food, trying to entice Israel to join them. Okay, why did, why did that happen? It wasn't random, right? Balaam counseled Balak, the Moabites and the Midianites, to do this. Okay, it was through his, it was through his counsel. Revelation chapter 2, verse 14, we, comes up again here. I have a few things against you because you have there some who hold the teaching of Balaam, who kept teaching Balak to put a stumbling block before the sons of Israel, to eat things sacrificed to idols, and to commit acts of immorality. And so, here's, here's the deal, guys. Is, Balaam did not curse Israel. But the question remains... How's he going to get that diviner's fee? Because he's greedy. Okay, Balak's already paid him up, right? And so Balak's getting pretty upset that here, you know, Balaam's not able to curse Israel. So what's Balaam going to do? Well, Balaam doesn't curse Israel, so he devises a plan that would undermine Israel's morality and spirituality, right? Undermine their integrity. And so he teaches Balak how to cause them to stumble. Why? Well, because God's not going to forsake His people. But Balaam knew how to lead the people away from God. That's the idea. Okay? Throughout Israel's history, God never moves, right? But the people move away from God constantly. Okay? And, and you think about their victories. Okay? Being able to get out of Egypt. Ransacking Egypt on their way out. You know, was that by their own power? Was that by their own might? Absolutely not, right? We get into the promised land and we see the city of Jericho sacked and, and fallen to ruins. Was that by their own might, by their hands? Absolutely not, right? And so every great victory that they have, only God can have the credit for it. But every time they have defeat, whose fault is it? 
they walk away from God. And when they walk away from God, they walk away from God's protection, they walk away from God's blessing, they walk away from God's plan, and then they have nothing but their own strength to, to stand on, and they don't have anything. And so, somehow Balaam sees this and recognizes that they're only strong because they stand with God, and if we can't get God to curse them, maybe we can get the people to walk away from God. And if the people walk away from God, they're vulnerable, right? They, 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 they don't stand a chance. And so Balaam, you know, teaches Balak how to put stumbling blocks in front of Israel to entice them spiritually and morally away from, 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 from God and the standards that God has. And so now we've got, you know, let's send these Moabite women who've been preparing a tempting meal for men who have ate nothing but what for 40 years? And how do they feel about that? We loathe, the, what do they say? We have nothing, there's no food and no, no drink and we loathe this miserable, which I always thought was interesting because it can't be both, right? Either you have no food or you loathe this miserable food, but you, you can't have no food and you hate the food. You know what I mean? But they have no food and we hate the food. That's what they say. And so, yeah, they're tired of eating the same meal to the point they even think, boy, wouldn't it be nice if we went back to Egypt? Why? Because think about the great foods that we had there. Yeah, I'm sure they fed the slaves really well, you know. Uh, but, that, I mean, but that's where their head starts to go. It's like even that would be better than what they're doing right now. And so let's send these Moabite women out into the camp, you know. Let's have them prepare this nice tempting meal. Let's have them sacrifice to their gods, right? And then invite them to come and involve themselves with it. Now, sacrificing to their own gods is always going to involve some form of sexual immorality you know and and there's a lot we can we can talk about with that but basically you have to understand this all these pagan religions you know someone came up with these ideas okay so you know we know that that for example that god had uh, had had the egyptian the, the water turned to blood well what was the point of that well, what were what were they doing in the in the nile well, they, they sacrifice children into the Nile. You know, well, why would they sacrifice their children into the Nile? Okay, well, why do you need to do that, though? Again, they've, they've made this up, right? There's, you know, I mean, this water god in the Nile doesn't really exist. So, huh? Okay, so would you sacrifice your children in the Nile when you have plenty of water or do you do it when you don't? When we don't have enough water, we're going to sacrifice our children in the Nile. I'm not saying that it's convenient, but now they'd have less, less, less people to water. You see what I mean? Um, and so you know, I'm just saying that every, every form of pagan and false worship, it, it serves the purpose of the worshiper, right? It's, it, it conveniences them in some way. Even the things that look like they're sacrificing for it. Well, you know, it may look like they're sacrificing for it, but there's, there's, another, there's another agenda behind it. And so, and then, you know, and then beyond that, most of these things are, are like a superstition. And there's, Isaiah talks about this a lot, that, you know, there's always two purposes for what they worship. There's, there's something practical about it, and then they make it their, their, their form of worship uh, maybe as a way to justify what they're doing, you see. And so sexual immorality was always rampant through Baal worship, uh, you know, all these pagan, pagan gods that they served. Well, you know, 
Isn't that convenient? You know, because that gives us a way to just do whatever we feel like doing anytime that we want. But now it's my religious service to my God, you see. And so they're enticing uh, the men with, with food, uh, with sex, uh, and, and, and bringing these women into the, into the camp. And, and so anyway, what do they do? They eat, they bow down, they join themselves to Baal. And so these Moabite women come to these Jewish men enticing them with food, enticing them with themselves to engage in the worship of their false gods. And what's going to be the end result? Well, if, if nothing stops this, my people are going to be your people. Our crops will be your crops. Our animals will be your animals. Our descendants will be your descendants. You see, I mean, they're, they're assimilating into this group if this continues. Okay. Hosea chapter 9 verse 10 God says I found Israel like grapes in the wilderness I saw your forefathers as the earliest fruit on the fig tree in its first season but they came to Baal Peor and devoted themselves to shame and they became as detestable as that which they loved alright let's take a short break here and then we'll come back and try to pull these ideas together and how it relates to uh, to Malachi here. Let's start with this, okay? If, if God does nothing at this point in the account, in the story, we've got, um, like I said, you know, Balaam's been involved. He told them what to do. They're sending in the Moabite women with their food and everything else, and Israel has taken the bait, okay? And so if God does nothing, how does this, how does this end? Okay, well, specifically, though, what, what, what actually happens? Okay, how so? Okay. Okay. The worshiping, okay, yeah. So, I mean, if you're joining with them, it's more than just... So, you guys understand it has nothing to do with their race, right? This isn't a racial thing. It's not, it doesn't have anything to do with them being foreigners specifically. It has everything to do with the fact of their faith, okay? And so, you know, in the Old Testament, Israel was it. There is no other people of God, um, you know, but, but even among Israel, we end up with a few foreign women, even in the gene- genealogy of Christ. So it, it's not that they're foreign, that's the problem. Um, here, here's, here's what's going to end up happening, okay? Exodus chapter 20, because God told them exactly what would happen. So Exodus chapter 23 31 through 33. Listen to what God says. It's like, it's, it's almost like God knew this was going to happen. Like, you know, isn't that, isn't that something, you know? All right. So I will fix your boundary with the, from the Red Sea uh, to the Sea of the Philistines and from the wilderness to the river Euphrates. I'll deliver the inhabitants of the land into your hand and you'll drive them out before you. Verse 32, you shall make no covenant with them or with their gods. They shall not live in your land because what? They will make you sin against me. For if you serve their gods, it will surely be a snare to you. Okay, and so that's, that's, that's number one. Go into Exodus 34, 12 through 16. Again, we get, we, this gets more specific as we go. Watch yourself that you make no covenant with the inhabitants of the land which you're going or it'll be a snare in your midst. Rather, you are to tear down their altars, smash their sacred pillars, cut down their ashram, for you shall not worship any other god, for the Lord whose name is Jealous is a jealous God. Otherwise, so this is what's going to happen, 
you might make a covenant with the inhabitants of the land and they would play the harlot with their gods and sacrifice to their gods and someone might invite you to eat of a sacrifice and then you'll take some of his daughters for your sons and his daughters might play the harlot with their gods and cause your sons also to play the harlot with their... That is the exact scenario, right, that is happening here in Numbers chapter 25. Okay, exactly what God specifically warned them do not do this. Do not get entangled with this. You know, maybe, maybe Balaam, maybe that's where Balaam figured out what to do, right? Maybe he was smart enough to listen to God. Uh, that, there's a sermon for you. <laughs> so, okay. Deuteronomy 7, 3 through 4. Furthermore, you shall not intermarry with them. You shall not give your daughters to their sons, nor shall you take their daughters for your sons. For they will turn your sons away from following me to serve other gods. And then the anger of the Lord will be kindled against you and he will quickly destroy you. So we've got, and there's more than just these three, but three very specific warnings about what's going to happen if, if this sort of action takes place in their lives. And so, and again, it's, it's, not, it's not an issue of, of the race. It's the issue of the fact that they, it'll take their heart away from following God to, to following other gods, right? That's always the issue. And so, um, you know, again, you know, we're dealing with the Midianites and the Moabites. Uh, Moses married a Midianite woman. And, you know, who was a Moabite? Ruth, right? And so it's, it's not about the fact that they're foreigners. It's about the fact that they don't follow God, right? They're serving pagan gods. And, uh, and so, so that's the... So anyway, let's go back to this. Again, if God does nothing, how does this end? Okay, well... Here's the deal. What exactly is the stumbling block? Israel is already looking for another way. You, hear, you, you understand that? They're, they're complaining about the journey. They're tired. They've been grumbling. They've been complaining. It's been 40 years of the same food. It's been 40 years of wondering. They're tired of not having their own land. They're tired of not having their own home. They're tired of being nomads. They're tired of relying on God for this bread uh, every day that falls from heaven. They're tired of the whole thing. And they're, they're grumbling. And they're complaining about it. And they're, 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 they're acting like God's holding out on them. They're already talking about what it would be like to just go back as slaves to Egypt. And then these Moabite women show up, offering them food, sacrificial feasts for their pagan gods, offering themselves. And so the question is, why would Israel keep going? Why wouldn't they just stay right where they're at now? Do they get land? Do they get women? Do they get food? I mean, it's just everything that they're wanting, right? is being offered to them. Now, what I want you to see is that what this is, is that this is a substitute for what God is, is providing for them in the promised land. Okay, they are this close to actually walking into what God has promised. They're standing on the edge of everything that God has promised them. And right when they're this close, the devil comes up and says, hey, I've got an easier way for you. You can still have everything you want. And guess what? You don't even have to fight for it. Just stay right here. Join with these people. You'll be, you won't be Israelites. You'll be Moabites or Midianites. And you, know, you can join with their people. And they said their flocks will be your flocks. And their land will be your land. Their offspring will be your offspring. And you can just stay right here. And why wouldn't they? It's so much easier. We've talked a lot about this. The problem with doing the right thing 
is not that it's hard to understand. It's not that it's hard to see what God wants. It's that it's so difficult when you're used to doing it wrong and it's so difficult when, when the right thing is not the easy thing. And that's, that's all it boils down to. It's, you know, being, walking with God, following God's plan, holding to his standard. It's, it's just a matter of integrity. And, and here it's, it's harder to do it God's way than to take this substitute, which gets them almost everything they want, right? But at what cost? They just got to cut God out of it. Okay? Now, listen, I'm entirely convinced that every version of false doctrine that exists, you know, is, 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 just, is just the devil trying to offer people a simpler way. Right? I mean, trust, there's nothing, nothing, nothing easier than just to stand up and, you know, let's get, let's get 12,000 people to show up in a, in a place and have an altar call at the end and then we can say, look at all the people we saw. And wouldn't that be easy? You know, to stand out and just hand out, you know, a tract that says, write your name here and your name's been written down in the Lamb's Book of Life and just say this prayer. I mean, that, wasn't that easier than getting involved with people and actually sharing your life with them and teaching them what it means to be a follower of Christ and helping them through the process of repentance and, and then immersing them into, into the, the you, you see what I mean? That, boy, that's some work, right? That takes some effort. It's slow. Right, where you know we there's all these these simpler ways, easier ways, and we can still call it church, right? We can still call it salvation, you know, and that's what we do. I mean, the reason that there's a a, a different church in every street corner of a town is because not everybody's doing it by the book, right? Someone has found some easier method, some easier plan, and that is enticing to people because it gives me what I want without the cost. Right? Gives me what I want without the discipleship. Gives me what I want without the repentance. Gives me what I want without the commitment. Gives me what I want without Jesus having to actually be the Lord of my life. Whatever it is, the devil's always trying to offer us a substitute of what God has got prepared for us. But make no mistake about it, there's only one way to claim the promise that God's given us, and that's following His way. Right? And so what I want you to see is the stumbling block before Israel is that they are going to give up everything that God has been trying to work through them since Egypt, since Abraham, <laughs> since the garden, they're going to give it up for something easier. And they're, and they're willing to do it. Right? They, they, they actually go through with the plan. And so, that's, that's the compromise. Right? That's what's at stake. It's not just... So often we, we look at this account and we think it's just about... Well, they're joining with foreign women. No, it's so much. It's more than that, right? Oh, they're eating sacrificed meat. No, it's more than that. This is this is the shortcut, right? This is the compromise. If they go along with this, there is no promised land anymore, right? They don't they don't cross the Jordan. They don't take out Jericho, right? They don't they don't lay waste to the to the people in Canaan, and 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 the temple doesn't get built, and then and then if the temple doesn't get built, and the people don't claim the land, and Judah doesn't doesn't eventually give birth to the Messiah who comes through, you know that seed of of Abraham, and you, you see what I'm saying? The whole plan is shot down if they take this compromise, this shortcut. That's what's at stake, and don't sit back and say, "Well, God wouldn't let that happen," okay? We all have free will. You know, I think about that all the time. You know, I mean, what, what if Noah decided not to build the boat? Yeah, that would have been, I mean, short book. Six, six chapters, we can quit studying it. Of course, we won't be here to study it. But that would be the end of it, wouldn't it? 
You know, I think about that with Egypt, you know, with, uh, with the brothers, you know, and, and, and you think about Joseph, you know. I don't think that was me. Was that me? That was impressive. I got everyone's awake now. So, do you have a button? Do you have a button that does that? Just when, when people start dozing off, you're like, man, that's... Uh, yeah, you doing all right there? <laughs> so, okay. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Does anyone need to use the bathroom real quick? <laughs> yeah, that was last week's lesson. So, <laughs> all right. So, uh, but anyway, but that's the, that's the, you see the compromise, right? That's that's the issue. They're they're this close, and they're gonna they're gonna miss. I, don't, I actually don't remember what I was talking about before that happened. So <laughs> Free will. Yeah, Joseph. The Joseph. Okay. Think. Yeah. So you know, Joseph. When his brothers come back, and it's like, well, how, how, would you have, how would you have responded to that? Like, wouldn't you love to just rub it in their face and maybe let them die? I mean, maybe, hopefully that's not what you would love to do. But you could see where people would want to do that. One of those brothers, Judah, right? What, what if Judah doesn't make, what if Joseph isn't compassionate and doesn't take care of his brothers? I mean, you, you see what I mean? You know, so, I mean, there's so many times that the whole plan of God is kind of hinging on, on, on the faithfulness of one or just a small group of people. And to sit back and think, well, God wouldn't put that up on us. Yes, He would. He absolutely would. If you don't think so, the entire salvation of this world hinges on your involvement with the Great Commission. There isn't a backup plan, right? You have to go out and, and, and share the gospel with people. And if you don't do it, nobody else, I mean, the world, you think the world's going to do it? Right? I mean, God's not going to do it. There's no account in the Bible where God in the New Testament tells somebody what it means to become a Christian. He always has another Christian explain the terms of pardon. You can look at that Saul, you know, on the road to Damascus, cries out to God, what should I do? Perfect opportunity for the Lord to say, repent and be baptized. But he doesn't. What does he tell him to do? Go to Damascus and there, there's going to be a Christian there. He's going to share with you the gospel. He'll tell you what you must do. Why doesn't God just tell him? Because the plan is by the foolishness of the message preached to save those who would believe. And there is no backup plan. There's no, there's no substitute for that. That is the only plan that exists. And so anyway, again, all the, you know, here is one of those moments where the whole plan of God could have just folded and this would have been the end of it. That's what's at stake, right? And so... So God's going to intervene, okay? And so let's, let's look at how he intervenes in chapter 25, verse 4 and 5. The Lord said to Moses, okay, well, take all the leaders of the people and execute them in broad daylight before the Lord so that the fierce anger of the Lord may turn away from Israel. So Moses said to the judges of Israel, each of you slay his men who have joined themselves to Baal of Peor. The King James Version says literally to hang them up before the Lord against the sun. And so the, the leaders of Israel who, who joined in this were to be strung up you know, in, in public, in broad daylight, you know, so that everyone could see them. And this was to set an example and, and to put the fear of God in everybody's heart because that's what this is going to require. But that's, that's just where it starts, okay? And then, uh, you know, we, we find out that, uh, that, that a plague uh, begins to break out among the people. And in verse 9, we get 24,000 end up dying by the plague. Um, and so anyway, you know, we, we get down through here in verses 6 through 9. It says, Behold, one of the sons of Israel 
came and brought to his relatives a Midianite woman in the sight of Moses and in the sight of all the congregation of the sons of Israel why they were weeping at the doorway of the tent of meeting. And when Phinehas, the son of Eleazar, the son of Aaron the priest, saw it, he arose from the midst of the congregation, took a spear in his hand, he went after the man of Israel into the tent and pierced both of them through, the man of Israel and the woman, through the body. So the plague on the sons of Israel was checked and those who died by the plague were 24,000. So you have to see what's going on here. God is absolutely angry and he's frustrated and you know this could be the end of everything that they've been working for and the plague is making its way through the camp and you have to put yourself in the situation. The people are mourning and weeping and crying. Some of them, you know, because why? Well, the leaders have all been strung up and executed. And now people are just dying uh, by the thousands through this plague. And it's starting to hit home what is going on and that God is not going to allow this to continue. And so the people are in a state of mourning, hopefully in a state of repentance. But they're, they, they are broken down. They are crying. They are weeping. Uh, you know, the, the people are dying by the hand of God. And in the midst of that, and everybody knows what's going on and and everybody knows why, right? This isn't one of those things where everyone's thinking, well, I wonder if God knows what we're doing with these Moabite women. Everybody knows what's happening. And in the middle of it, here walks this Israelite, uh, a, a prince of Israel with his arm around this Midianite woman walking right through the camp while everyone else is crying, mourning, while people are being executed and dropping like flies from the plague. And he walks right past the priests, right past the, the leaders, right past everybody. You know, he, he, he runs, runs right through everyone mourning and lamenting, and he's not ashamed. It's almost like he's proud of his sin, and he's celebrating his sin. Sounds like our culture right now. You know, we're, it's, it's, it's something to be proud of, you know, and you have to be accepting of it. And so that's the idea. And he walks her right into the tent, and he's flaunting his sin before God, before Moses, before the priest. And if you get down into verse 14, you, you're going to read and find out who these two individuals are. And one of them is a, a prince of Israel, but she is the daughter of the king of the Midianites. And so you see that this is a political um, connection here that these two are going to form and, and begin, right? This is the two groups of people coming together, okay? The prince of Israel and the daughter of a Midianite king, okay? And so that's, that's what's happening. And, and so he takes her to the tent. The word for tent here in, in the Hebrew is, is it's interesting. It's, I'm not a Hebrew expert, but you can do a little word study on it if you want. And it's, it's not a sleeping quarter, Okay, this tent is a, it's a temporary propped up uh, room that no one's living here. It's basically a temporary brothel for what's happening with the Moabite women, right? And so there's no questions. They're, they didn't go in the tent to sit down and talk, okay? And so Phineas, uh, you know, as this woman and this man walks in there, their sin being flaunted, the very reason everybody's dying, right? And Phineas, the, the grandson of Aaron without delay and without warning. And you have to understand that. Phineas does not stand up and say, Moses, Aaron, you know, what do you guys think we should do about this? He doesn't take a, a consensus. He doesn't take a vote. He doesn't come and arrest the two and, and there's a trial and a jury, right? He grabs a spear without permission, without any discussion, without a long lengthy trial and he runs both of them through in the tent all at once. How does... God view what he did. 
Yeah. Not as irrational, but God views Phineas as a man who's going to contend for the faith. Right? A righteous man with a zeal for God. Balaam, back to, we'll come back to this in a second. Balaam, understand, is at the heart of what happened. You know, and, and there's a spirit of Balaam, okay, for a lack of any other way to explain it, that is at the heart of what takes place here. And again, it's that, it's that compromise. It's that, let's find an easier way. It's, it's, you know, and every time Israel, and every time the church does the wrong thing, it's, it's at the heart of it. It's, it's we're, 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 we're giving up what's right for what's easy. And you know, you think about when the kingdom's divided, right? When the kingdom first split after Solomon. You're right, the northern kingdom, you know, and everything looks so good for that guy, right? He's up there, but he gets paranoid because what if the people go down to that southern kingdom and they start worshiping God and then they think, well, you know, uh, the, the, the rightful king is down there and then he's going to lose his kingdom. And so he sets up the, the high places, one at Bethel, one at... Uh, What's the other one? Is it Dan? Is it Dan? Yeah, and he sets up the high play. And what does he tell the people? You remember? Well, he says it's too much for you, right? He says it's too much for you to go all the way down to Judah. It's too hard. It's too difficult. It's too inconvenient to travel all the way to Jerusalem. So look what we've done. We've set up something close. It's close enough. It's good enough. You can worship God here. It may not be exactly what God wants. See, it's a substitute. And so there's, it's, there's this the spirit of Balaam Right, that, that exists among God's people. And it's not just Balaam. I mean, uh, you know, um, we'll come back to that in a second. Let's, let's turn and read these accounts here. I, I called it Balaam Rides again. But let's go to Micah chapter 6. I don't have clever titles, but when I do, you'll hear about it. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> do you? I was real proud of what to do with number two last week. I thought that was clever. So, all right, Micah, chapter uh, chapter six, okay, and verses one through five. It says, "When you're there, say say, got it. Yeah, <laughs> okay, all right. Enough enough of us are there. Micah's a it's a hard one there. All right, hear now what the Lord is saying. Arise and plead your case before the mountains and let the hills hear your voice. Listen, you mountains, to the indictment of the Lord." and you enduring foundations of the earth because the Lord has a case against his people even with Israel he'll dispute my people what, what, uh, what have I done to you and how have I wearied you answer me indeed I brought you up from the land of Egypt ransomed you from the house of slavery I sent you before Moses Aaron Miriam my people remember now what Balak king of Moab counseled uh, and what Balaam son of Beor answered him and from Shem to Gilgal, Gilgal uh, so that you might know the righteous acts of the Lord. Okay, and so they're, they're being reminded all the way into Micah, don't listen to this counsel of Balaam, right? And so the, again, there's this, 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 you know, Balaam's long gone, but it's like, you know, he keeps showing up, right? That attitude of Balaam, that spirit of Balaam. Revelation chapter 2, we, we already read it the, uh, once there, but, you know, in Revelation 2, the people, again, are acting like Balaam in the church of Pergamum. And it's like, well, how could that still be happening, right? We're in the New Testament, and Balaam's still riding amongst the church, you know? And it, it's, it's, remember, Israel didn't go to the Moabite women, right? Balaam taught Balak, send them right into the church, that was the idea, right? The send them right into the congregation of Israel. And again, what we're starting to see is, is it's not that the church keeps 
well, it's, well, we got some of that too. But it's the world creeping into the church. That's the problem, right? More and more often we've got worldliness, uh, you know, uh, sin, immorality being accepted within the church. Okay, Second Peter chapter 2. Let's turn there. I don't think we read this one earlier. Second Peter chapter 2, verse 12 through 16. It says, but these like unreasoning animals born as creatures of instinct to be captured and killed, reviling where they have no knowledge, will in the destruction of those creatures also be destroyed. Suffering wrong as the wages of doing wrong, they count it a pleasure to revel in the daytime. They are stains and blemishes, reveling in their deceptions as they carouse with you, having eyes full of adultery that never cease from sin, enticing unstable souls, having a heart trained in greed, accursed children, Forsaking the right way, they have gone astray, having followed the way of Balaam, the son of Beor, who loved the wages of unrighteousness. Verse 16, But he received a rebuke for his own transgression, for a mute donkey, speaking with the voice of a man, restrained the madness of the prophet. Right? So what, what's the people he's talking about? He's talking about people who are uh, reveling in their deception as they carouse among you. Where are they at, guys? Among you. They're, in, they're among the church, you see? Eyes full of adultery that never cease from sin. Who are they after? They're, they're looking for unstable souls among the congregation. Okay, well, what does that look like? Well, people with unstable character. That's what they're looking for, right? They're looking for faults. They're looking for fault lines in the congregation because that's where you can start to really, you know, leverage yourself and, and, and cause a lot, of, a, lot of, a lot of corruption and problem in the church. And, and, you know, we've talked a bit about this in the past, but I'll give you an example of what that looks like. Oh, you know, uh, JR, you, you go to church with me and, uh, you know, Chris, he's a good preacher, you know, but let me tell you something. Right? That's how that works, right? We're looking for little faults in the congregation, little, little ways that we can kind of get our leg in there and, and, and try to start turning things against one another. And so they're looking for unstable souls. They're, they're trying to feed off of uh, weakness, uh, doubts, instability. And it, you know, he says it took a talking donkey right, to restrain the madness of the prophet. And it's, well, what would it take to restrain them today? It's a good question. Jude 11, same idea. Woe to them who have gone the way of Cain. Uh, for pay, they've rushed headlong into the error of Balaam, and they've perished in the rebellion of Korah. Right? He says again in Jude, it's in the church. He talks in that same book, and that, hopefully that'll be a book we get to study in one of our classes here, here in the future. But, uh, but Jude, you know, he talks about how they have snuck in unannounced. Un, un, you know, and so again, where are they at? They're in the church. Right? What are they doing? Well, they're, they're fault finders. They're grumblers. Right? They, they speak arrogantly to one another for the sake of gaining an advantage with people. Okay, and, and it's the same idea, right? They're worldly-minded, they're void of the Spirit, and they cause division. That's what Jude 19 says. It's that spirit of Balaam. It's still at large today. And so, what is it? Well, it's, it's engaging in greed. It's appealing in the flesh. It's catering to the worldly, and usually getting paid good money to do it. And, and why? Well, because people will turn aside from sound doctrine and they'll heap up modern-day Balaams just to tickle someone's ears, to find loopholes, to justify and excuse uh, behavior for you to just do whatever it is that you want to do anyway, right? And so that's, that's certainly happening today. And here's the thing. Are people tired of the Lord's way? You know, all I've heard for the last 15, 20 years is that, well, you're not going to win them with the Bible. 
No one's interested in the Bible. That's ancient. No one cares about that. If you want to get people in your church, you need less Bible. You need less Bible study. You know, you need to focus on other things. And that's, that's, that's the big thing today is that the Bible is irrelevant. Right? That's, that's what we hear all the time. The Bible's irrelevant. You're not going to win people with the Bible. That's Balaam. You, you, you hear that? That's Balaam talking. That's Balaam riding into our churches right now saying, you don't need God's way. We find an easier way. We'll find a quicker way. We'll find a way that, that more people can get along with, right? We'll tickle the, their ears. We'll, whatever it takes, you see. And so, you know, Balaam says things like, well, to win the world, you have to look like the world. Okay? Balaam will, will tell you, hey, you know that church down the road, they've got some pretty sketchy doctrine, but boy, I like their music, and they've got a great kids program. So maybe you should take your family there. They don't teach exactly right, but everything else is good. You know, that's, that's Balaam telling you to compromise, find an easier way, right? You got a guy and a girl in the church living together. They're not Christians, but you know, uh, you know that, that it's, uh, they're, they're good old people and you know, their, their mom and dad's a part of things, so we can't really say anything or confront it. So we're just going to let that go. That's, that's Balaam, right? Compromise, Okay. One way or another, that's what it comes down to. And one way or the other, what is the consequence? Well, yeah, you're, you're, you're pulling yourself away from God. The consequence is the same as it was in Numbers chapter 25. What's at stake is everything, is the promised land. You know, what's at stake is everything that God has prepared for us. Because the minute that we start to make that something different, right, we lessen that, we cheapen that, it ceases to be God's thing anymore. Okay, and so Israel would have forfeited everything that God did and all that effort you know, to get them to that point. You know, they're willing to give that up. And, and people today are willing to give it up as well. And so that's, that's really worth thinking about. But that's that spirit of Balaam. And I want, you, I want to make sure you see what's at stake here. It wasn't just uh, you know, join yourself with these women. It's, we're going we're gonna to completely give up on everything that God's prepared for us in God's way and find some, some cheaper substitute for it. All right. Um, Numbers 25, 10 through 13. Let's, let's look at what God did here. Uh, this is, this, I, I, I had this in the wrong place. I should have brought this up earlier. The Lord then spoke to Moses and said, Phinehas, the son of Eleazar, the son of Aaron, the priest, has turned away my wrath from the sons of Israel in that he was jealous with my jealousy among them so that I did not destroy the sons of Israel in my jealousy. Therefore say, Behold, I give him my covenant of peace and it shall be for him and his descendants after him a covenant of a perpetual priesthood because he was jealous for his God and made atonement for the sons of Israel. And so here is a covenant of life and peace you know, to a, to a Levite right? that is to be a perpetual covenant for the priesthood. And so, you know, I want you to think about this. This is God giving Phineas the stamp of approval. I mean, this is God saying, I want all of my future priests to have the character, the, the mindset, the attitude, the zeal that this man Phineas has, right? God is, God is trying to set Phineas up here. And you think, you know, we think about some of the holy men, the men of great faith. Think about some of the ones that would have been present in, in, in Numbers chapter 25. They did not stand up and stop this. Phineas did. Okay, and so Phineas gets God's stamp of approval. And so God's basically saying, this is, this is what I want from my priesthood. And so back to, back to Numbers, or Malachi 2.5. My covenant with him 
was one of life and peace, and I gave them to him as an object of reverence. So he revered me and stood in awe of my name. So in Numbers 25, I want you to realize that what's at stake was was everything that God had planned. Their covenant with God would have ended that day. And it was a priest that put things back in its place, right? And so in Malachi's day, you see what's at stake. God is telling them that the covenant is at stake. You know, and the priests are the problems. They should be the ones fixing it. They should be the solution. Now, when we go back into, and we look at Numbers chapter 25, here God says it's a covenant of life and peace. You recognize that on that day, those two things were absent, right? That there was nothing but death taking place all the way around them. There was no peace because God was not happy and the people were being deceived. And, and so none of that changed until Phineas stood up in Psalms 106.30 and says, uh, Phineas stood up and interposed and so the plague was stayed. And so no life, no peace until Phineas stood up and did something. And so do you think it's going to be any different in Malachi's day? Now I'm not saying that someone needs to take a spear and go around killing everybody, but it's going to take someone, it's going to take somebody of action, right? Someone with a zeal, with a reverence and a respect for God, right? To, to stand up and say this is what's acceptable and this is, has to be what's right and that we're not going to tolerate this sin and this corruption and this compromise any longer. Okay, and so in Malachi, it's the priests that are the problem. They're supposed to be the solution. Life and peace. Let's talk about that for what is life? It's a pretty open-ended question. How would you define it? he says a covenant of life and peace how would you define life existence what'd you say oh okay so okay that's hard right that's hard to yeah yeah okay okay free will okay yeah, those are good. Those are good answers. Uh, what, what about peace? What's peace? How do you define peace? Okay, only in Jesus. What? Jesus is our peace. Those are good answers. How would you just? How would you describe life to somebody outside of the church? We're using some good biblical definitions, but I mean, if you really, if a kid walked up and said, "What is life?" Like, how would you actually define that word? Okay, sure. But how would you define it, though? Okay, that's good. We'll come back to that in just a second. That's that's good. Any, any other thoughts? I'm I'm not looking for a specific answer. I'm just curious what how you all would define. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. 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 Let's go back to peace again. Same idea. How would you, I mean? How would you? How would you describe that to a five-year-old? Not fighting. Okay. Turmoil. Turmoil. We just. 
No worries. Okay. Okay. All right. So let's let's go back to this for a second. So uh, so we said uh, so you contrasted it with what goes on in the darkness, and that seemed to be seemed to be a lot of us kind of going back into that. It's like the the difference between life and Christ, life night and day. Right. Again, two polar opposites. Right. I said, what's peace? And we said, what was it? Not fighting. Okay, that's good. So there's certain words. My point, my point I wanted to get to was that there are certain words that are hard to define. Like we only know it because we know what the opposite is, right? And so it's like, well, what is, what is darkness? Well, it's, 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 it's no light, right? So it's, it's kind of hard. You, it's hard to describe that without the opposite, right? And so we understand life because, you know, we, we experience death, right? Death is, a, this, death is a part of life. And we understand peace because, well, you know, you've probably had a little chaos and turmoil in your life, right? And so those, you know, one way to define those things is to look at the opposite. And so um, what is the opposite of life and peace? Death and war, okay? Well, let's, let's look at that for just a second. You know, uh, we know life because we know death. We, we understand peace if we've experienced any kind of fighting or war, chaos, those sort of things. If the Levites lose their covenant with God that's about life and peace, what do you think they should expect? Death and war, okay? What kind of death? What kind of war? Okay? Could be both, right? Could be both. So, you know, here's a question. Have the Old Testament people ever experienced war before? Yeah, they're at war all the time. Rich history of warfare. Let me rephrase it. Have they ever experienced anything remotely considering fair when it comes to war? Or against them? Either way, it doesn't seem fair. You know? Yeah, so that's something to think about. God's either there to help or they're there to, to kind of push them the other direction. But, uh, you know, but they, you know, my, well, my point is they've, they've seen defeat. They've been hauled off into captivity. But, you know, we saw, like the Edomites saw defeat. They didn't come back. Here Israel came, come, come back. So we, we spent some time talking about that. So even in their defeat, God's still kind of there with them. You know what I mean? So they've never really seen anything completely fair. You would think the only person in the world that they should be scared of going to war against is God, right? They should, they should of all people, understand what that would look like. Now, here's the deal. We mentioned this is the last word from God for a 400-year period and then and before John the Baptist. We are have the luxury of being able to look at the other side of this, right? We can look down the line, we can open up to Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, and we can say, it worked. Or, <laughs> we can say, boy, they didn't listen, right? And so, God is telling them, this is at stake, right? This covenant of life and peace. And so, if they don't follow the solution that God's giving them, if they don't really listen, if they don't really take it to heart, if they don't turn and give God the glory, if they don't, if they don't start to, to, to act like, like the priest, like Vinius, and what we're going to do in the next couple verses is he is going to give us a profile of what a biblical priest ought to be. And it's interesting because we get into character. Right? He's going to deal with the character of a priest, which he's never done before. Right? We talked about that in the tabernacle. In the tabernacle, 
being a, a, a biblical priest, this is just about who your mom and dad is. Do you meet the physical requirement? I mean, there was no spiritual or character requirement. But here he's going to get into, there is a character requirement that he, he's expecting from his priest. And, and they're falling flat here on this. And so it's interesting that God's kind of shifting that way. Uh, but, but the point is, we can go into the New Testament, okay? And what we find out, uh, and we're going to look at these, okay? If you guys want to kind of turn and... and uh, we're, we don't have a lot of time. Let's break this up. Who wants the first one? Mark 14. Okay, Jake, who want, who, someone want to take the second one? Just raise your hand if you want it. So, okay, you want, how about this one? Okay. Someone want this one here? Not all at once. Okay, and then last one. Anybody? We got it? Okay. So these are all in your notes, so you can all look them up later if you'd like. But we're just going to look at this and say, okay, you know, what is the relationship between the priests and God when we get to the New Testament? And that, that should be enough for us to determine, well, were they able to hold on to this covenant or is it, or is it over, you, you see? And so Matthew chapter, or Mark chapter 14, 53 through 72. Says they led Jesus away to the high priest and all the chief priests and the elders and the scribes gathered together. Peter had followed him at a distance right into the courtyard of the high priest, and he was sitting with the officers and warming himself at the fire. Now the chief priests and the whole council kept trying to obtain testimony against Jesus to put him to death, and they were not finding any. For many were giving false testimony against him, but their testimony was not consistent. Some stood up and began to give false testimony against him, saying, We heard him say, I will destroy this temple made with hands, and in three days I will build another made without hands. Not even in this respect was their testimony consistent. The high priest stood up and came forward and questioned Jesus, saying, Do you not answer? What is it that these men are testifying against you? But he kept silent and did not answer. Again, the high priest was questioning him and saying to him, Are you the Christ, the Son of the Blessed One? And Jesus said, I am, and you shall see the Son of Man sitting at the right hand of power and coming with the clouds of heaven. Tearing his clothes, the high priest said, What further need do we have of witnesses? You have heard this blasphemy. How does it seem to you? And they all condemned him to be deserving of death. Some began to spit at him and to blindfold him and to beat him with their fists and say to him, Prophesy. And the officers received him with slaps in the face. As Peter was below in the courtyard, one of the servant girls of the high priest came, and seeing Peter warming himself, she looked at him and said, You also were with Jesus the Nazarene. But he denied it, saying, I neither know nor understand what you are talking about. And he went out onto the porch. The servant girl saw him and began once more to say to the bystanders, This is one of them. But again he denied it, and after a little while the bystanders were again saying to Peter, Surely you are one of them, for you are a Galilean too. But he began to curse and swear, I do not know this man you are talking about. Immediately a rooster crowed a second time, and Peter remembered how Jesus had made the remark to him, Before a rooster crows twice, you will deny me three times. And he began to weep. That's a big chunk there, yeah. But we see a whole lot about the relationship between the Lord and the chief priests, the Levites, right? Let's hit the next one, okay? It was uh, Matthew 16, 21. These will all go a little quicker. Um, whoever had it, Matthew 16, 21. It's, yep. Okay. 
Okay. Matthew 26, 59. Matthew 27, 1. And 27, 20. Matthew 27, 20. But the chief priests and the elders persuaded the multitudes to ask for Barabbas and to put Jesus to Okay, so the question is, what kind of relationship exists between the priests and Jesus? Would you classify this as life and peace? Or death and war? Yeah. So, they're not going to listen to the warning in Malachi. Okay, and you have to understand, the crowd that crucifies Jesus, the crowd that is the opposition to the church in the New Testament, that is the same crowd that Malachi is warning in the book of Malachi. It's the same people, right? This is the same group of people. And he's telling them, this is what's going to happen. You're going to lose this, this relationship that we have of life and peace. And what, what can you expect? Death and war. And when we open up Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, the Lord and these people are not working together. There is no peace between Jesus Christ and these religious leaders at all. They are all out at war against Him. And that's the same crowd Malachi is addressing. And it's, it's, it's easy to, to separate that and not, not realize that that's the, that's the same crowd. The crowd, you know, the crowd we're pleading with in Malachi to do the right thing is the crowd that Jesus condemns you know, in Matthew 23. It's the same group, right? I mean, it's the same crowd that, that uh, you know, that is openly trying to lie, deceive the people, and, uh, and, and, and put Jesus to death. And so, so the point is, if this is going to change, if it's going to work in the day of Malachi, then the Levites in the time of Malachi, they're going to have to realize that the covenant that they have with God, it, they're going to have to realize it means something and, and that it's worth keeping. Okay, it's worth keeping. It's worth keeping and it's worth holding on to. It's not something that they just want to throw away. Uh, and God is trying to call them to remember that a zeal for the Lord is important. And a zeal for the Lord has to be uh, where they're at with this. So, what's it going to take to stand up to this? Uh, it's going to be the same thing that stood up to the same problem in, in Numbers chapter 25. You're going to need a priesthood with the same zeal as Phineas. Someone to stand up and say enough is enough. Right, you, you need it. it you you got to have the guys who can stand up for what's right, even in the midst of so much wrong. And it's again, it's not going to require someone to take spears and go around and murder a bunch of people. Okay, but it is going to take someone uh, who have the guts to stand when when literally nobody else is standing on the word of God and on the truth. Okay, and we we got to have that attitude today too. It's it's no different. We have to have the attitude that even if everybody else goes and everybody else compromises, even if what's popular today is to do something different, I am going to stand with God even if I'm the only one left standing there. Right? That's the attitude we have to have with this. All right, let's have a word of prayer and then we'll close out and we will pick up some speed next week in this. So, uh, appreciate your patience through tonight to to get through that. <laughs>